All right, if you can grab your Bibles, please, and turn to the book of Romans, chapter 5. We're going to pick it up there. And we actually left off in chapter 5, verse 5, so we're just going to kind of pick it up in verse 6. But just to kind of prep you and get your minds working and remember where we've been and some of the ground that we've covered so far. So the book of Romans is really, uh, we're, we're theming it grace, just simply grace. And in the book of Romans, we have so much that explains just the things of life. And sometimes it's easy to forget the treasure that we have, the answers that we have, the truth that we have in His Word. But the book of Romans, it really covers so much. It explains uh, what's wrong in the world. It explains what's wrong with us. It explains um, how we relate to God. It explains right and wrong and, and the role of right and wrong in our relationship with God. It uh, explains how to walk with God. It explains uh, how to have eternity with God. And um, the, just the very core things that as human beings in this world, if 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 we don't get those things right, we have difficulty in every area of our life. And and so these are foundational issues. But the the amazing thing is when you have a biblical understanding and perspective of the, the most important things of life, it gives you such confidence and such, such hope. And the world makes sense to you. So it's understandable as you, you relate to the world with truth, understanding that the world was made by God a certain way and then we understand how it works and so the the peace that that we have one that we can be made right with God and how that works but then just also under understanding the world and and the things that are going on in the right way and so in order to do that then the book of Romans Paul and it's interesting that Today, many people will will say that you know you in order to be successful in church, you can't in a church you can't teach the word or you can't teach line by line and verse by verse. And I don't know what the definition of success is for somebody who would say would say that, but the apostle Paul sure thought that teaching people things like this were basically looking at. Uh, what he would be telling these churches when he'd go and visit them. And so he he didn't think that a, a very superficial knowledge of God was a good thing. He saw that people needed to know the depths of the truth of God. And that's what we find in the book of Romans. And it's, it's uh, simply what Paul would be teaching when he would go on his missionary journeys. These are the things that he saw as so... Important. So it kind of gives us an idea of how far we've fallen away from just a simple biblical understanding of life. And when we fall away from that, all sorts of confusion will start to set in. And so maybe you experience a certain peace that you don't even realize, or maybe it's just easy to take for granted. That, And I know I do that, that just to correctly understand things, and to know why these things are happening and why uh, the world is the way it is, why I'm the way that I am. And, 
and, and how to deal with myself when I start to get away from God. All these things are, are given to us in the book of Romans. And so in order to do that, Paul, he starts off with just explaining our true condition as human beings. And that's as sinners. So he starts off talking about sin. And think about just missing that part. Very common. The general understanding of people is that they are generally good. And when you start off on that foot, then you might as well start off a hundred miles away from truth and reality in God. Because to understand yourself as a human being, you first have to understand yourself the way God sees you, and that's as a sinner. So he spends chapter 1, verse 18, all the way through chapter 3, verse 20, explaining that we are all sinners before God. Then he transitions in chapter 3, verse 21, and talking about then how do we deal with that issue of our sin? How do we be reconciled with God? And then, so then he talks about our salvation. And he talks about our salvation has nothing to do with what we do and everything to do with what God has done. So that's when our understanding of God really begins to be rooted in the fact that he loves us unconditionally, even though we were sinners. So as, as he tells us, that although we were sinners, Christ died for us. So God made the uh, availability of reconciliation through sending His Son Jesus into this world and Him dying on the cross and raising from the dead. So He spends some time just in an incredible place to meditate on the Word is starting in chapter 3, verse 21, and going through all the way to chapter Six and just taking in this amazing picture of what God has done for us to save us. So we're kind of in the middle of that, talking about His salvation and what God has done for us. And, and part of what He's doing is, he in chapter 4, He went back to say that His salvation was talked about in the Old Testament. It's not an Old Testament thing, New Testament thing, but He goes back to the father of the Jews, Abraham, and quotes a verse where Abraham believed in God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. And all of what he's teaching is try to, to try to get, get us to understand that it's not by works, it's not by good deeds, it's not by ceremonially following religious procedures and rules because none of those can actually change the inside of us. And he's stressing the fact that it's all about our inner person and that is where we need to be right with God because that's who we really are, inner person, not the outward thing. The outward things come from the inward things that have been changed. And so right in kind of the middle of that, he also quotes David where David says that we're blessed when our sins are not imputed to us. In other words, that they're not counted against us, uh, uh, pointing again to something that's going to happen where our sins can be taken away so let's pick it up uh, we're get, we'll look at verse um, 3 we'll start there of chapter 5 actually look, look at verse 2 it says through whom 
Also, we have access by faith into His grace in which we stand. So that, that's where Paul is getting us. Our standing before God. And this is a, a positional place where we're positioned before God and uses this term justified. Justified is what we are declared by God in a sort of a legal way where he declares us innocent before God. And he's able to do that because he does it on the basis of what Christ has done for us. So we're declared innocent, but not only are we declared innocent before God as sinners, he declares us innocent based on Christ's sinlessness, not our sinfulness. And he declares us justified He declares us innocent, but then He also treats us. That word justified means that He also treats us as innocent people, as holy people, as people who, even though we sin still, but in Christ, He sees us as those who are sinless in Christ. So He's going to deal with a lot of those issues. So the hope that we have and the confidence that we have is that We stand in grace or the unmerited, unearned favor of God. That's our standing. And then as we live and walk in that standing, in that position, then you'll notice in verse 5, he says, Now hope does not disappoint. So he's talking about just having this hope that is certain because of what Christ has done and not because of what we do. It doesn't disappoint. He says, because the love of God has been poured out into the hearts by the Holy Spirit who is given to us. So the believer's life is one where in this world we go through trials and difficulties and things, ups and downs and what have you. But, But as we go through those things and trust God in them and have faith and exercise our faith in them, our faith in God actually grows. We become more like Him. And becoming more like Him is experiencing more of the love of Christ. And so that's actually the thing. For that, that, That's what motivates the believer, is the love of Christ in their heart. That's the, the game changer, if you will, that, that God is, is uh, not just called us to this life of, just robotic following of God. But then we find out that as we do follow God, that there's this amazing love, and he says, poured out in our hearts. And that love of Christ that happens when we go through trials and when the things of this life are put in perspective through our trials, and then we know the love of Christ, then that's the thing that keeps us going. It's the love of Christ. And so that takes us to where we're going to begin today in verse 6 as he just continues on with this understanding of our salvation. So he says, For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates His own love towards us in that 
while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So that's the statement that Paul is trying to convey, convey that, do you understand how much God loves you? And if you're having a hard time with that, then you merely need to understand that you and I were enemies of God. That means we were rebelling against Him. That means that you can look at it like we were trampling under feet the, the work of Christ. In other words, I, I think of it just spitting on Christ like they did when, when they were uh, arresting Jesus and um, torturing Jesus and they were plucking out His beard and punching Him in the face. And, I, and I'm thinking that's, that's what we were doing. And it, that statement of Jesus on the cross where he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, is, is just, it's this incredible love of Christ, this picture, this understanding that God is not just some wispy, poetic, hallmark movie of love, but he actually demonstrated, he proved it, he showed us that and so that's, we, we can always go back to the cross when, when we're wondering and feeling like, does God love us? And it's not always a feeling. We don't always feel this incredible love of Christ. A lot of times we do, but we don't always feel like that. And that's where we go back to the cross. We say, man, he cannot have done anything more to display how much he loves us. Amen. He demonstrated that. He showed us. And so that just answers all the questions that we may have about how God feels about us. Some people feel He's a, a, an impersonal being. Some people feel that He did come and die and rose again, and then He, he just stays there and doesn't involve Himself in this world or anything that we do. But it's exactly opposite of that, that He demonstrated His love in a tangible way for all of us to be able to recognize and see. But then as He sits at the right hand of the throne of God now, He doesn't just leave us here as orphans. He told His disciples that. But He continues to work in and through our life. He gathers our tears in a bottle. He numbers the hairs on our head. How intimate is that? How knowledgeable is that? If you're married, you know your spouse pretty well, but I bet you don't know how many hairs on their head they have. I bet you don't know how many tears they cried this month. That's how intimate... Uh, <laughs> I see some people laughing at the hairs thing, but some people it's easier to count than others, but I bet you still don't know. So you think about how involved He is with us in our life. You think about how much He cares right now. And don't buy the lie of Satan that God has retreated. He's left you on your own. You're not, you're not left alone. And He knows you so much more in detail than you can ever imagine. And most importantly, He knows what's in your heart. He understands your struggles. He understands your broken heart, your brokenness. He hears all of your prayers. And He's working through those prayers. And oftentimes, like, a farmer who plants seed and we don't, the farmer doesn't know what's going on with that seed, but, but God is working under the surface in many cases and, and we just can't see it, but by faith we know He's working. We know He's working through those prayers and we know that because He 
loves us and demonstrated that love for us. And so in verse 9, this is a term that we're going to see a lot. You might want to underline this much more because he uses uh, these contrasts. And when he talks about Christ and grace, he keeps saying much more. So, you know, for somebody who thinks that they've out the grace of God, then he says God's grace is much more than your sin. It's much more than what you've done. Or, and that's what he's going to talk about here. So he says in verse six, uh, verse 9, sorry, he says, much more than having now, past tense, now been justified or made right with God. So that's uh, something that happened in the past that has a continuing effect. That word justified is in that Greek tense of that word. So he did something in the past that has a continuing effect and that's justified. And so that, that word just means that it's all settled. It's all done. You cannot be more saved. There's nothing you can do as a saved person to be more saved. You're maxed out on salvation. And so you need to put that to rest. I know and have a lot of conversations with people that keep struggling with that, keep doubting that, keep, keep questioning that. And the reality is, if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, then it's all done. And now it's time to move away from that question and start walking with God in that confidence that it's because of what he has done and his unmerited favor that now you're standing is set, all that's taken care of, and now live in Christ. So he says, uh, much more than having now been justified, how? Notice all the emphasis on him. By his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Notice all those terms, his blood through him. For if we were enemies, we were reconciled or made right to God through the death of His Son. Notice the emphasis again on Him. Nothing about what we do. Through the death of His Son. Here's that term again. Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. So what he's saying is, if you are enemies of God and He died on the cross for your sins to make you right with God, now that you're right with God and not an enemy of God anymore, then how much more is God's grace going to be experienced in your walk with Him? And then He says in verse 11, and not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received reconciliation. So you notice that, just that little section of Scripture, the whole emphasis is on what Christ has done for us. So then he says in verse 12, Therefore, just as through one man, uh, one man's sin entered the world, who is that? Adam. Through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, because sin brings death, and thus death spread to all men, because all have sinned. Now, if you ever get into a discussion with somebody, 
And maybe someone here is thinking that they're still good enough to be accepted by God by their good works. The fact that every human being dies is evidence that sin is in the world and sin is in every man and sin leads to death because we weren't created to die. We are created to live forever. But because sin entered in, now men and women die, everyone. And so that's proof, that's evidence that we are sinful people. Death, the fact that we die, is evidence that we are born sinners. But then he says in verse 13, he says, But until the law, sin was in the world, but sin wasn't imputed when there is no law. So the the law came at a certain time before the law. Sin wasn't imputed. But then it says, nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses. Adam before the law, Moses the law. Even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come, that's Jesus. So what he's doing is now he's, he's comparing how one man was able to infect the whole human race with sin. But he's saying if that could happen, and it's evidence and it's proof, even before they had the law, there's evidence because everybody died still, there's evidence that every man is, is sinful. And one man, through one man, Adam, sin spread to the whole human race, so what he wants us to understand, then, then it's understandable that through one man, Jesus Christ, sin can be eradicated from all those who believe. So that's what he's, he's making this point about that. So in verse 15, it says, But the free gift is not like the offense. For if by one man's offense many died, so that's Adam, much more, the great, there's that word again, much more, the grace of God and the gift by the grace of one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. Man, these are some loaded statements, aren't they? But now he's just trying to anchor in to our understanding how amazing our salvation is. And he's doing that because generally people can relate to sin. The consequences of sin and the ramifications of sin and the repercussions of sin, whether on themselves or where they see it in someone else or just see it in the world. But he's saying as devastating as that was, the fall of mankind, that's pretty devastating, right? All of mankind fell through one guy. As devastating as that was, now he wants to understand there's something much more than that. And it's the the grace of God is much more. So where sin is is taken to us to this certain, certain line, certain line that seems like there's nothing that one can do about that. And that's why so many people have this idea 
that it's about doing more good things than more bad things, that that makes them right. Because the, the idea that, that a human being who's infected by sin, that sin can be completely eradicated in God's eyes, it just doesn't seem right. But the power of our salvation and the grace of God is, is demonstrated in Jesus Christ in a much bigger way and much more where he's saying that God's grace abounded. So that, that, that's just this overflowing, this much stronger, much powerful force of God's grace. It's more powerful than the sin that kills mankind. Let that sink in. Verse 16, he says, and the gift, and I, I like, he just keeps saying that the gift, it's free. It's not anything that we do. He says, in the gift, it's not like that which came through the one who sinned, Adam, for the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation. But the free gift which came from many, many offenses resulted in justification. For if by one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more, those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. So when the law came, starting with the Ten Commandments, it was like a mirror showing men their true condition. And that should have been very shocking and often was very shocking. And so when the law came, it had this tremendous effect. And it's interesting because even, even now, the, the law, if, if you begin to speak about the things of the law and a person's condition in light of the Ten Commandments, especially when you talk about their violation of the Ten Commandments in their thought life or the things that they say, demonstrating that the inner person is corrupt. And so when people think they're good and you begin to say, well, the Ten Commandments say that we shall not commit adultery. And they, they may say, well, I've never done that. But then you say, well, there's an inward component to that, that if you look at another person with lust, that you've co committed adultery in, in your heart. And if you've ever gotten angry 
inside. And maybe you haven't murdered somebody, but in your mind, in your heart, you did. Or maybe you were jealous of somebody and you wanted the stuff that they had or the life that they had. Well, that's coveting. You you begin to bring these things out and typically a person will be defensive. They'll be mad. They'll be angry because they're being convicted in their heart. And so that's what the law does. And it's it's a very effective tool that God has given us to the to share with the person so that they know their true condition because a big downfall and deceit that Satan has put on people is not knowing their true condition before God. And because of that, they'll often reject God because they don't realize their own true condition before God. But he, he's saying here that the law is what brought people to the understanding. It was like a teacher. It taught people. Like without the law, without... You know, I used the example last week of the Autobahn. You can drive as fast as you want in Germany, and here they have a speed limit. If you're on the Autobahn going 150, so you don't know you're breaking the law and it's not a problem, but if they have a sign that says don't go more than 65 and you go 70, then you're breaking the law, and you know that. So that's what the law did. It brought awareness of sin. And so in verse 21, it says, so that as sin reigned, notice that word reigned, had dominion or power over, as, so that as sin reigned in death. That's where sin is seen as in its full effect, in death. Even so, grace might reign or have the power through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So now he's going to talk about this more in chapter 6. So it's important that we get this verse, uh, verse 21 of chapter 5. And he's talking about this, this whole thing about power, about reigning. So when you think about reigning, you think about a, a king in, in a kingdom, reigning over a kingdom. He's over and has dominion over and power over a certain area or what have you. And so what he's saying is that sin had power and the power of sin is evidenced by or proven by death. And then he compares that to grace. And notice this. This is, this is what's important about this. So God's unmerited favor towards man through the cross of Jesus Christ and through His work, that gift that He gave us, it was free. It's what He did. It says that there will be another king reigning. There will be something else in control or in charge. And what He says, it's, it's righteousness. So here's the big switcheroo that happens when someone gets saved. When someone gets saved, it's not just someone being forgiven and going on their merry way. That's also something that Satan does to trick people. Well, I'm forgiven, and so now I 
live my life. And it doesn't matter because once saved, always saved. And I do believe once saved, always saved. If you're truly saved, if you're truly born again, I do not believe you can be unborn again. When he gives us eternal life, that means how long? Eternal. But I do believe many people are not really saved, but think they are and are walking to their own death spiritually because they're counting on some outward work of profession of faith without being genuine and authentic in their heart, willing to surrender their life to God. And because of that, they're not really once saved, always saved. They're never saved and experiencing the repercussions of not being saved. But in their mind, they're thinking they're saved. But what we find here is something changes. When someone is truly changed, righteousness reigns. What does that mean? Does it mean we're perfect? Well, we're going to talk about that in chapter 6. But something changes. Something on the inner person changes. What the law could not do. So the law just told us we were bad. But it couldn't make us good. That's where grace comes in. The law told us we are bad. Grace gives us the ability to be good. And we're going to see that in chapter 6. But again, let me read verse 21 as we get into chapter 6. So that as sin had control, I'll, I'll use that word, as sin reigned, had control, and that led to death, then the opposite of that is grace, God's unmerited favor, when received, would then have power through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So let's look at that in chapter 6. So he says, what should we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? So the question is, and what he's thinking people might be having in their mind is, he's talking about how good grace is. Then someone might say, well, it doesn't matter what I do then. Because your grace that you're talking about, it's better if I sin because the more I sin, then the more grace there will be. So doesn't that glorify God more? And so that, that what he's dealing with here is that, but it, in the way that we might understand it today is someone that says, well, I'm, I'm forgiven and that's all there is. I'm, I'm forgiven. I said a prayer. I went to church and prayed to receive Christ. I got baptized, whatever it may be. But he's dealing with that. If it's true, if there's a true occurrence of salvation in the heart of an individual, it's, it, there's more than the forgiveness. There's more than just, you're justified, go on your merry way and forget about it. That's what he's dealing with here. So, 
Should we then sin so grace may abound? And when he says continue in, in sin, that means habitually practice sin, that, that just be a part of my life. So you may be a person like that, or you may encounter people that have a godless life practically. So they live a godless life, and yet they say, well, I'm a Christian too. Maybe some of you before you got saved have said that. Well, I'm, I'm a Christian, but yet you're living a life presuming on your salvation, but a life the practical aspects show that you're truly not saved. You're truly not born again. So that's what Paul is dealing here with. So he says in verse 2, he says, Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? So that's the answer. So what happens when a person is truly saved or justified, someone who receives the grace of God, then what happens there is, as Paul is saying in verse 2, they've died to sin. So it doesn't make any sense to live in sin. That's heavy, isn't it? So when, when we were saved, something happened. Not just some fairy dust sprinkling over us where God says just sprinkles it and says you're forgiven. But, but something here he's telling us is, has happened. He said we died to sin. When, when we got saved, we died to sin. And so his argument is, then should we live in something we died to? So what he's talking about is now, what is a believer's relationship with, with sin? What is a believer's relationship with sin? That's what he's dealing with. And this gives us a, an incredible amount of insight into understanding our own salvation, and maybe if we're not even saved at all. He says in verse 3, he says, Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ, we were baptized into His death? So that's the change. So when you put your faith in Christ, what happens is that that person that we were, dies. Now you may, may say, well, I'm still alive. And that's true. But what he's saying is that old you, whose father was Adam, all of us trace our origin back to Adam. And because of that, then we are in our sins. But he's saying now there is a, a new you. And this is so important to understand, and he's going to draw this out even more, but to understand that when we get saved, when we are born again, we're not the same person. Now imagine 
trying to live your life as a Christian and not being born again. That is a life of frustration. And that's what happens to many people. And that's why you hear stories about people deconstructing their faith or uh, leaving the faith or what have you. And those people are people that are not truly born again and then just come to the point where they realize it's too hard to live as a Christian and so I might as well just live according to my true nature. And so what Paul is saying, if you're truly born again, and remember, that means it's a free gift that we simply receive from God. It's nothing that we do on our own, but we have to know that our life is different. It cannot be the same. Something radically changes. And it's so radical, he's explaining it as the comparison between a dead person and a live, a live person. So that, that old person is dead. Now there's a new person, is what he's going to tell us. There's a new person. But again, let's look at verse 3 a little more. He says, Do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ. So he, this gives us some more understanding of baptism as we do the outward baptism where you put a person under the water and bring them back up. But what he's referring to is simply when one is born again, they're immersed into Christ. And so when we do a baptism, what do we do? We put them underneath the water, Right? So we put them underneath water. What does that symbolize? The water's like a coffin. So when someone gets baptized, what they're saying is, that old person, that old me, is in the coffin now, is dead. And that's what Paul is referring to here. And then he says, as many of us were baptized into Christ, we were baptized into His death. So when one comes to Christ, what happens is now we identify with the cross. So this is what the cross is all about. So the cross is, is it's so meaningful and impactful because if you're wearing a cross tonight, what you're saying is, I, that old person, I died. I don't exist anymore. That's what you're saying when you wear a cross. And you're telling everybody, I'm dead. That old person is dead. And so when we think about Christ on the cross, then when we put our faith in Him, now we are partners with Him or partakers with Him by faith in what He did. Death. So imagine someone says that they're a Christian, but there is never any death to their old life. But they're, they're exactly the same and doing exactly the same things. They don't seem to have any conviction of sin or any care of the world about righteousness or godliness. So what are you to make of that? That's a huge problem. Because when one is truly saved, that person died. And you can use the reference to baptism and you can use the reference of identification to Christ on the cross, 
But Paul really brings this out in the book of Galatians 2, verse 20. He says, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. So Paul was never up there on the cross with Christ. But he was there by faith and spiritually because when he became born again, he identified with Christ dying on the cross. So he says in Galatians 2.20, I have been, past tense, crucified with Christ. And then he says this, It's no longer I who live. That old Paul, he's saying, is dead. It's no longer I who live, but he says, it's Christ who's living in me now. That's the difference. That's what he's saying here. And he's explaining that and drawing that out. So a, a true Christian is one who has died to their old life of sin, their old life in Adam. And in verse 5 it says, For if we have been united together in the likeness of His death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of His resurrection. So when we baptize someone, we bring them out. We don't leave them there. That's part of the technique of baptizing. And that's an important part of it. So if you're going to get baptized, just know you're not going to stay there. We're going to, we're going to get you out. Because if you're truly born again, you rise new. So you die old and rise new. And that's the amazing thing about being born again. And that's why many people don't get saved because they don't want to die to themselves. They kind of like their thing they got going on. And, and I bet most of us here who are saved, we didn't like our old life, our old self, and the repercussions of sin and death that weighed on us heavily and the burden that we carried around. And so... We gave our life to Christ and we died. But we didn't stay dead. We rose to new life, just like Jesus resurrected from the dead. So we died, but then we rise new. We rise born again. We rise in Christ. We rise righteous before God. We rise with a new nature and a new spirit. We rise with the hunger for the things of God, the things of the spirit. We rise in Christ. No amen on that one. <laughs> so verse six, he says, knowing this. So you know this. So you have to know this. So knowing this, he says that our old man was, past tense, crucified with him, with Christ, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. What, do you, what is he saying? He's saying... That before we were born again, 
we were slaves to sin. In other words, sin owned us. Sin had power over us, dominion over us. Now imagine trying to improve your life of sin, trying to be better not sinning. When it is in your very nature to sin, but not only that, you're like in in handcuffs to sin. You're a slave to sin. Sin owns you. Sin has power over you. A human being in and of themselves has no power over sin. We have no ability. That's why Jesus, he, he was referring to uh, our, our powerlessness over sin when he, he, he was saying that uh, you can do nothing without me, but with me all things are possible. And just referencing this understanding of the power of sin and darkness. And then he uses this term, now you're in slavery to it. Sin owns you. That's the condition of every human being before they're born again. Sin owns you. He says in verse 7, For he who has died has been freed from sin. So something happens. When we get saved, we die to that old person who is a slave to sin. That's what we're dying to. And when we die, that old person dies, then what we come back to life in, what we're born again in, is now we have freedom that sin isn't our master anymore. Sin does not have power over us anymore. Sin does not have dominion over us. And that's the freedom that a believer has in Christ. That finally the power of sin over us has been broken. We're no longer slaves to it. So in verse 8, he says, Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with Him. So it's it's almost like a, a practical way that Paul wants us to understand what we're to do after we're saved. So if you didn't start to get it now, or by now, now what he's talking about is sanctification. And starting in chapter 6, he's, he's talking about then, as a saved person who has been changed radically from the inside out, then how are, how are we to live? How should we live our life? What do we do now? What does that look like? So our position, our standing before God has already been established, but then after that, there's something that comes after that, and that's how we live our life. And this is what he is dealing with now. And so again in, in verse 8, he says, if we died with Christ, if we're truly born again, if if we've truly put our faith in Christ, if we have truly identified with what He did on the cross, and we've, we've truly given up the rights to ourself, and God has taken over, if that really happened, He says, now we believe that we shall also live with Him. So now our faith is such 
where the way we live our life is in connection to him. That's the big change. So now the way we live, and this could be a good indicator and a good test for us, as Paul said in Galatians 2.20, for me to live, uh, or that's Philippians 2.21, for me to live is Christ. That's what he's saying. What changes now is before I lived for myself and I lived to do what I felt like doing and wanted to do, but that person died and now for me to live is Christ. So that's how we, what happens when we become born again. So now we, we live to Christ. That's, that's the new life in Christ. We have a new master. We have a Lord and a Savior. We have a relationship. And so now the way we live is, is just what he said. We live with him. And then he brings this out a little more. We live with him knowing something, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more, and death no longer has dominion over control over Jesus, over him. For death, the death that he died... He died to sin how many times? You got, do you see it? You got to see it. One time. He died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So now what he's saying, so here he's dealing with the practical things. So positionally, we stand in grace. And if it's true, if we're truly born again, that can never change. That is our new person. That is who we are. John 3, we've been born again. But from there now, as forgiven people, we have been given this new nature to live our life in a different way. And he, in verse 11... He tells us there's, there's something practical we have to think about. He, say, he uses the word reckon. And that, that word is an accounting word where you would just account for something or consider and know something that has happened. So it's sort of like understanding your identity. So your, your identity as a, a new believer and who you are. So you're different. You're not the same. You're different. And so because of that, what you have to do is to consider yourselves to be dead to sin. So here's the practical part. So how do we live our life? Jesus freed us from sin. Positionally, 
Nothing can change that. So then practically we live our life thinking that Christ died for our sin and we have to understand that we're different and we're not like that old person anymore. That's what he means to reckon. So you can see just from that how Satan constantly wants to drag us into or back to doubting our salvation because of things that we do or don't do. Because what he's trying to do is, is drag us back into a works-based righteousness. But our standing is in grace. And so Satan will mess with our head and, and tell us that maybe you're not saved or you're not good enough or you didn't do enough or other people seem to be more saved than you are. He does all those kind of things. But what Paul is saying is, as we settle the issue once and for all, that is because of what Jesus is, has done and our faith in that or, and our trust in that, then that settles everything. We're dead now. That old man's dead. And so we've been raised again in this new life to walk with him. And this new life that we have in walking with him we have to remember we're not the old person anymore. That's what he's saying. Remember, that's not you anymore. So your identity, this is your identity. People talk about identity a lot. So that old, your identity is not in what you used to do. That's why I, that it cannot be correct to say that someone that I'm a gay Christian. Because you can't identify with the old sin. That if, if you were gay or had that propensity or whatever, that has died. That's dead. So don't bring that back into your life now. That's dead in whatever your sin is. So you may have a drinking problems or drunk pro drinking problems or drug problems or lust problems. We all had some of those or all of those. But just know that's not you anymore. That's what he's saying. Reckon that's you. And don't let Satan bring that up and say, yeah, that's you. No, I'm dead. That, that old person, I died with Christ. So Satan will try to bring that up on you. Don't ever let him bring you up. Point to the cross. But see, you have to remember, you're new now. That's not you anymore. You're new in Christ positionally, but then practically he's telling you, now live like the new person. He's saying your nature has changed. Our nature before, sin. Controlled by sin. We feel like doing something, then we're probably going to do it. But that's not your nature anymore. A believer's nature changes where your desires are for Christ. You, you have new desires to want to be with Christ, to want to read your word, to want to fellowship in church, to want to do right things by God. If you want to do right things by God, that doesn't come from you. It, becomes, it comes from your new nature. So whereas before... You are born again, you sinned according to your nature. If you sin as a believer, it's against your new na nature. And so, yes, we still sin as believers, but it's against our new nature. That's why we can't habitually sin because we don't enjoy it. We get convicted by it. A sign that we're truly a, a born again believer is that when we sin, that we repent and we turn from that. We recognize and acknowledge that. But Paul, Paul is saying that you have to understand, no matter what you do, remember that you're dead, that that old person is not here anymore. Dead. And so what do you do because of that? 
You live to God. That's what we do as a new person, a new creation in Christ. We live to God. Whatever we do, we do it as unto the glory of God. And that's because we have a new nature that wants to do that. Our old nature didn't care about pleasing God. Our old nature just wanted to please ourselves. Our new nature wants to please God. And, and that's a sign or evidence that we're truly born again. If we're saying that we're forgiven, but yet we don't have any desires to please God, then Paul would say that we're still that old person. But that old person is dead when we receive Christ. And now we want to please God. We want to live for Him. So we have to, in our minds and in our hearts, recognize that we're not that same person anymore. Then he says in verse 12, he says, Therefore, do not let sin reign or have control or have power in your mortal bodies. And he's saying that because our bodies still have sin in them. Our bodies have not been redeemed. So therefore, there can be a conflict. And this is what he's dealing with here. So he says, in this conflict, sin's still around, but don't let sin have control, is what he's saying. That you, verse 12, that you should obey it in its lust. So that's, that's the issue then, is how we're going to exercise our free will to obey either sin or God. And we have that ability and that choice as believers, but what's different is sin is around but doesn't have power over us unless we give it. So we have to give sin its power. And when we give sin its power over us, then sin controls us. So he says in verse 13, he says, this is how we do it. Don't present... your members or your body parts as instruments of unrighteousness to sin. But instead, present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion or power or control over you, for you are not under law but grace. So here's the practical part. So as born-again believers who have a perfect standing before God positionally, we still will have to struggle with sin practically. And the difference now as believers is that sin doesn't have power over us, but now we have a choice of what we present ourselves to and what we present ourselves to. So in other words, if sin starts to get a foothold in our life, it's because we're giving ourselves to it. That may be our eyes. We're giving our eyes to sin. It may be our ears. It may be a lot of things. But what we're doing is it's kind of like a, a father walking his daughter down the aisle to present her to the groom. 
that's what when we sin and fall into sin, that's what we're doing is is we're presenting ourselves to the sin and we're saying, here I, I am, I'm available. But he's saying there's something the opposite we can do. Instead of doing that, now that we're saved, our new nature is different. And what we do is we present ourselves to God and we say, here, God, use all of me. And then as we do that, as we present ourselves to God and we say, Lord, here I am. That's uh, what the, the word that's used in Romans chapter 12 to present ourselves to God as holy living sacrifice that we're, we're presenting ourselves to God and we're we're saying Lord here I am just take over everything have control of my mind of my eyes of my ears of my heart everything where I go what I do Lord have control I give you that control over my life so in verse 14 he says for sin shall not have dominion over you for you are not under the law but grace so that is according to our new nature. And so verse 15 then, he says, What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? Again, certainly not. He says, Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one's slave whom you obey? whether of sin leading to death or obedience leading to righteousness. So, so the obedience is the key. So what we obey is what we are a slave to. You know what that means? That means we don't have an option of not being a slave to something. That means there, there's really just two choices. We're a slave to sin or we're a slave to God or in righteousness. So he says the way we do that is we present ourselves to God and we say, God, use me, take me, have control over me. We're, we're giving God control over our life. And then he says, but God be thanked that through you we were slaves to sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. That's the new life we have in Christ. We're slaves to righteousness. Verse 19, I speak in human terms. And what he's saying is that these analogies that he's using are human analogies about the slave and, and the master and dominion. He says, because of the weakness, uh, weakness of your flesh, for just as you presented your members as slaves to uncleanness and of lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness. Do you, do you see how, the, how it progresses? It's momentum. So whatever we obey, sin or righteousness, there's momentum. And this is what happens in addictions. That's why when... Addictions are allowed to go a little further, a little further. It just becomes such a real problem because it's, it, if you don't take care of it right in the beginning, it really becomes difficult to stop because it takes over and gains momentum in your life. And people that have been caught up in addictions, they know that. But the good thing is there's also momentum the other way. It says... In verse 19, let me read that again. I speak in human terms because of the weaknesses, uh, 
weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, now, so he's talking about as believers now. So you, you used to get carried away as a slave and the, these sins just kept going and going and going. But now, he says, present your members as slaves to righteousness for holiness. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regards to righteousness. Righteousness wasn't even a thing. Verse 21, what fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now, having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages or the payments of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so I know we're just a little over, but a lot to think about. And I think just as we sort of just bring that all together, Paul is doing such an amazing job as the Holy Spirit is impressing upon him this truth and to understand the difference between the life that is now dead and the life that's now alive. So if you're truly born again, that should be really exciting because now the opportunity to live a life before God and the ramifications of that, the the beauty of that life that's lived for God and the fruit that comes from that life for eternity. And so praise God we've been set free. Praise God for our salvation. And now may we live unto God and the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this evening. I thank you for your word. And Lord, I pray by your spirit that you just impress these things uh, really just so deep and rich and amazing. Impress them on our hearts and practically help us to live for you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, God bless you guys. Have a great night and we'll see you Sunday.